it, it is sin that separates, right? God's arm isn't short, his hand isn't heavy, but our sins have separated between us and God. That's the way it is. Chapter 21. The Psalms are part of a larger group of Bible books known as the books of wisdom or the poetic books. And from the book of Job through the, the Song of Solomon, the writings are all designed not to move history forward, but rather to devote themselves to the daily living that a believer has to do with God. And given to us in different settings, in different times, in different places, they become really that, that present tense experience with God, where the Lord's desire and intention is to teach us to walk with God every day and to apply the truth of God's word to our lives. So the book of Psalms is an interesting one because they're written by lots of different people. David wrote just about half of them, but they are almost like listening to someone else's prayer book or, or sitting in their prayer time, because the Psalms really provide for us, you know, the encouragement to take God at his word and then places those truths in uh, real situations. And many of them that we've learned through the history books or the history of the Bible, I should say, the historical books. And uh, you learn to pray. You learn to have faith. You learn what God can do and what he wants from us. You, you learn how, you know, the saints of old reacted under the pressure and how they applied what God had to say. It is certainly the book of Psalms, a large book. It is an awesome book of, of relationship with God. It is the most quoted book in the Bible, maybe because it's so large, there's so much to say. But in any event, um, we've been going through them and, and trying to take five at a time. I hope that you're studying before you show up and spending some time with them. All five of our, our um, Psalms tonight, David wrote, and they all have to do with salvation. The joy of salvation in chapter 21, the cost of salvation in chapter 22, the savior of our salvation in chapter 23, the king in chapter 24, and forgiveness that God provides in chapter 25. Last time we finished with chapter 20, which was a prayer that David offered up that the king might be delivered from the battle he was facing. And it was prayer before the battle. It was declaration, God, we're going to trust you, and if that kills us, then that kills us. But we're not going to take this upon ourselves. Psalm 21 follows because it really is a praise for the victory that God brings. You will find in the Psalms a lot of Psalms linked together, sometimes twos, sometimes fours, uh, sometimes more. Notice in verse 4 of chapter 20 last week, David, as he wrote the psalm, wrote, May God grant you according to the desires of your heart to fulfill your purpose or all of your purpose. And then you come to chapter 21 tonight, verse 2, and you read, You have given him his heart's desire. You read over in chapter 20 last week, verse 7 and 8, Some will trust in chariots and some in horses, but we're going to remember the name of the Lord, our God. And then you come to chapter 21, verse 7, and we read the king trusts in the Lord rather than in those other things. So 
there are many of these linked psalms where, where, where one is driven by need and the other is driven by result. And so this becomes the national thanksgiving, I think, prayer or, or, or uh, praise, if you will, of thanksgiving. But they are linked together. Generally, I think people don't find it very difficult to pray when they're in trouble. Unbelievers will try their hand at it. You know, they don't necessarily know who's on the other end of the line. They certainly don't have any assurance that they're going to be heard. They have no confidence God will respond. But there, there is much to be said for people praying when they're in trouble. Um, it is harder, it seems, to be prayerful once God has blessed or to be grateful for very long. And yet these two psalms linked together say, here's a great need in chapter 20 that people are facing a battle and they don't know if they can win but they're trusting to go out under God's banner. And then you get to chapter 21, and the whole psalm is one of thanking God for his deliverance. How many prayers do you suppose you've prayed that just thank God for what he's done? Aside from a Thanksgiving service. You know, how much of your time in prayer do you go, oh, Lord, you've really blessed my life. You know, rather than coming with a shopping list, which is our usual prayer life, you know, um, just to come and say, God, it's so good to know you've been taking care of me. And, and not immediately running off, <clears throat> to the next need, to the next prayer request. I thought this afternoon about those 10 lepers who came to Jesus and they were healed as they went and one stopped. And I know he'd been told to go to the priest to be checked out. But before he went, he thought he better go back and thank the Lord. And he went to find him before he got away too far. And it was the Lord who said, I thought I healed 10. And he said, you, you did, Lord. Where are the other nine? He said, I don't know. And the Lord said of the nine that didn't show up, well, they're healed, but you're made whole. So the response of thanksgiving comes from the heart of people who know God and who have come to know who he is. Others, you know, they, they get from God much, but they don't necessarily and aren't necessarily so thankful. Well, here David writes this blessing, God's blessing and, and what God has done and just thanks the Lord for it. Verse one, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord. And in your salvation, how greatly he shall rejoice. You know, from going to, to battle and saying, we're not going to take our chariots or the big guns or our horses. And, you know, we're going to stay out of the way. I, I think there's something cool about walking with God. And then when you need God to do something that you actually stay out of it. Because most of us will pray, God bless. And then we will go to try to fix it, won't we? And then we'll mess with it as much as we'll make phone calls, we'll make suggestions, we'll insinuate, we'll, we'll do everything short of doing anything, you know. And then we'll say, well, Lord, you got to do something now, you know. But we've been so busy at it that, that by the time things are done, you know, we wonder if God has done it or we've done it. We meddle with things, don't we? We try to help God out. But when, like David and the nation here, you find that you're going to just wait on the Lord for his saving strength, and then he comes to save, and you go, oh, man. I'm going to wait on the Lord for his strength. The end of verse 6 of chapter 20, with the saving strength of his right hand, and then the king shall have joy in the strength of the Lord, and the salvation that he has given he will greatly rejoice in. And then he says in verse 2, you have given him, the king, his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. You have answered my prayer. I don't know what could motivate you more than answered prayer. <clears throat> when you seek God and God answers. Uh, do, do any of you keep prayer journals? I've had a prayer journal um, since 1975. I, have, I, I can show you prayers from 30 years ago, and some of them weren't so good. 
I'm glad the Lord went, forget it. You're not getting any of that, you know? Not a chance. And I'm glad that he, like, edits prayer. And some of them were awesome. And to watch God work. And then every month, I have a new list of things I'm praying for, and I add to it. And if, as the Lord works, we take away. You know, I have a list for the church and a list for my personal and my family and a list for people that aren't saved and folks that are sick. And then I go back with a yellow marker, and I mark the ones that God answered and what he did. I have a list of 30 years. I'm really excited about praying because I know God works. But you have to keep track. We are so quick to move to the next thing, you know. But look how awesome. Thank God for his answered prayer. It's the joy of my life. It is the strength, the great joy of the king, David writes. He says in verse 3, you meet him, the king, with the blessings of goodness and set a crown of pure gold upon his head. The blessings of goodness. I, I love the phrase. You know, the king faithfully serves the, the Lord in the place God gave him. The king faithfully goes out leading the people to war. And, and by faith, he finds the blessings of goodness. If you serve the Lord in God's way, I think that you can expect to see the blessings of goodness. God's provision, God's guidance, God's assurance. And it ought to cause you to bless the Lord <laughs> because God has been good to us as his people. David writes in verse four, he asked life from you and you gave it to him and length of days forever and ever. Now there's two interesting phrases there. David in going into this battle said, Lord, I wanna live, we wanna survive. And they did, but there's an even more important truth. There's an eternal life too. I'm going to make it. I made it through the trial, but I'm going to make it with you. So there's life forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you've placed upon him. You've made him most blessed forever and made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he will not be moved. Look at these Look at these, you know, emphatic statements. Glory and honor and majesty are received because God's working. David is exceedingly glad because God's around. His present experience in the Lord caused him to find his mercy and, and find trust. And God's covenant with those who look to him, the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he won't be moved. And so David had experienced some great victory, and he was thankful to the Lord. In the rest of the, the psalm, David then looks forward with this lesson that he has learned to say, I know that if there's another enemy waiting, the same thing's going to take place. I'm learning now from my past experience and hope that God is going to give me ultimate victory over those who would stand against his people. So your hands will find future tense, all of your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. And you shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger, and the Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire will devour them. Their offspring, offspring you shall destroy from the earth. Their descendants from among the sons of man, they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back, and you will make ready your arrows on your strings towards their faces. So, the prophetic nature of the psalm, you know, God will discover his enemies, destroy them permanently, leave no ancestry. The destruction of the wicked will be with cause and with purpose. And in the end, verse 13, you be exalted, Lord, in your own strength. 
and we will sing and praise your power. You know, praise the Lord that God is able to take care of us as his people. But notice the blessing. Notice the, the, the worship. Seek God for all. Bless God for all. Psalm 22 is, is an interesting psalm. It's an awesome psalm because it is a proof of the crucifixion being the will of God. It was written in 1000 BC before crucifixion was practiced by anyone. It was written in a way that tells us God's plan for his son when he was to come would go just the way he intended. And unlike most Psalms or unlike most prophecies that have a literal application to the writer, most prophecies have a short-term application in the near view and then a far-term future fulfillment, uh, usually when it comes to what Jesus is going to do. There is no way you can attach a short-term to this at all. Nothing in David's life from the history comes even close to him being uh, crucified. This is utter, pure, 100% prophetic that David in writing probably had very little understanding of what he was doing, but God moving by you know, the spirit through David's life writes down this awe-inspiring literal description of the crucifixion, which by the way, is more graphic in Psalm 22 than it is in the New Testament gospels. The New Testament gospel writers, for the most part, pass over the suffering. Isaiah doesn't in chapter 53. David doesn't here in Psalm 22. The, the focus there is upon why the Lord does these things, why he came to give his life. But here in this 1000 BC description, it is this, you know, the prophet of the highest order, David, speaking out. This very well seems to be the psalm that was upon Jesus' mind as he hung upon the cross, especially in the darkness hours from 12 to 3. He was on the cross for some six hours. But at noon, you remember the day became as night, and there was quiet, and really nothing much was said for much of that time before the Lord at 3 o'clock would dismiss his spirit. But these private hours, the hours between 12 and 3, where Jesus and the Father would have to deal with man's sin where the father would pour out upon his son the sins of the world, where he would then find himself separated and turning his back upon the son as the Lord paid the ultimate price for our sin. Death came as a result, but the ultimate price for him was separation from the father. The ultimate price for you, death, sir, but that results in separation from God. That's the horror of it, you know, never being with the Lord, never having that fellowship. His cry starts this psalm, and his suffering is the focus all the way down to verse 21. And then in verse 22, there is the victory of the cross and the, and the victory of, of his death and the declaration. It's really the it is finished um, of the Old Testament. In fact, verse 31 ends with the words that he has done this. But literally in Hebrews, it reads that he has finished. So you have both the suffering of the Lord and then the victory of the cross. But it's a very unique prophecy because... Like I said, it has no personal application to David whatsoever. So we read in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night seasons, and I'm not silent. Jesus cries out to the Father, believing he has been forsaken by him, asking why. 
asserting that God has been silent in his cry. I think it gives you some great insight into the agony that Jesus suffered in the garden when he sweat great drops of blood. You know, scientifically, medically, you can do that only if you are under such tremendous stress that this would be allowed, that the, the, the transfer, the pressures would change and, and you could actually sweat blood. But it would require some enormous amount of pressure upon your life. It is certainly this separation that Jesus sought to avoid. The death he would handle, the pain and the sorrow he could deal with, but the separation from the Father. You know, the prayer in John 17, I've delivered my word to them. I want them to have what we've had since the beginning of the world, since the foundations of the earth. But for now, there was going to be agony. And, and it, it is sin that separates, right? God's arm isn't short. His hand isn't heavy. But our sins have separated between us and God. That's the way it is. So here Jesus is experiencing the separation that for every one of us, we would face if it were not for his payment in our behalf. God said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. They didn't physically die. How did they die spiritually? They were cut off from fellowship with God. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said of Jesus' death, he made him to be sin for us, though he knew no sin, so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the big price, isn't it? He is separated, so you never need to be separated from the Father. Ephesians, Paul said in chapter 2, You has he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sin. How? By this sacrifice of himself. And as Jesus tasted death, this gulf that sin had placed between you and the Father was gapped. The cross bridged the gap between sinful man and a holy God. In England, you know, if you ride the subways, they always have these, you know, two and three, six, 12-inch places where you have to step over. And so constantly on the, on the intercom, they, they, they play the words, mind the gap, mind the gap, mind the gap. And if you're there for a couple of weeks, that's all you hear, mind the gap, mind the gap. It's a great little verse, though, mind the gap. You can't step over to God's side without coming to the cross. You better mind the gap. It's infinite, you know? But here you, you read of, of the heart of Jesus as a man in the flesh, on the cross. And as the sky grew dark and the father poured the sins out of the world upon his son and turned his back from him, uh, Jesus cries out these words. You can read them word for word there in Matthew 27. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you'll read there from the sixth to the ninth hour, darkness upon the land. And then about the ninth hour, at the end, as, as the Lord had just about paid that complete price, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? The word should, have, I think, have been assigned to the people standing by to go back and read the psalm. They'd have learned it, it would have registered. I've heard that somewhere before. I've learned that in school. Where is that from? And had they gone back, they would very well may have seen in this psalm what was going on before their faces. We're not told if anyone caught it or not. <laughs> but they caught it later, just like you can catch it, you know, and see it. We read in verse 3, You are holy, the Lord declares, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you. They were delivered. They trusted in you. They weren't ashamed. 
Jesus remembers the past and encouraging himself, he recollects the true character of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God, how God had answered and delivered his people. But Jesus had come to pay the price. <laughs> so he would have to be hanging there on his own with our sin. But I am a worm, he goes on, no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. And those who see me, they ridicule me and shoot out their lip and shake their head and say, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And so Jesus saw that God had the Father in times past had delivered the people, but Jesus wasn't being delivered. His prayers were going unheard. He was you know, filled to the brim with sin, our sin. And the mockery of men continued and the victory and delivered, the deliverance seemed nowhere in sight. Again, if you look at the Gospels, you know, you find exactly as David writes here in 1000 BC that at Golgotha, as the people gathered, they mouthed these very words. Read Matthew 27, begin at verse 39. And they passed by blaspheming and wagging their heads. You who said you could destroy the temple and in three days raise it up. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, then come down from the cross. And the chief priests came and the scribes and the elders. And they said to him, he saved others. He cannot save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross. And we'll believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if you'll have him. He said, I'm the son of God. A thousand years earlier, David, sitting down to write of the, the things of God, was motivated by the Holy Spirit to write the very words. Had they stopped for two minutes and thought about it and went to look, I don't think they would have been aware of the fact that they were fulfilling prophecy with their very attitudes. But Isaiah wrote 300 years later than this, he is despised and rejected of men, a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. We hid our face from him. He was despised. We didn't esteem him. And here the heart of Jesus as he remembers the deliverance of the Father for the people, but he, not he, he would not be delivered. He would have to pay the price. We read in verse 9, You are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. Trouble is near and there is none to help. And again, the past faithfulness of the Father will God now continue. And in that place of rejection, Jesus, fully man, recalls his walk of faith. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls from Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like raging and roaring lions. And I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint, my heart like wax melting within me, my strength dried up like a potsherd, my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. The dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet, and I can count all of my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Physical suffering. You know, the bulls of Bashan, Bashan is a a uh, real fertile kind of farm area up in the north of Israel between the Jabbok River and Mount Hermon, which is kind of the, the dividing point between uh, Israel and Syria and Lebanon. 
But there are bulls there even today that run very wild. In fact, because of all of the wars and the, the landmines that have been dropped, the bulls are kind of good. They find landmines. And every once in a while, the bull will just kind of go up and smoke, you know. But, but it saves the people's lives, so I guess that's a good thing. But they were, they were known for their slightest provocation to charge you. The same thing with the dogs that are mentioned here. They aren't, you know, family pet. These are wild pack dogs, verse 16, who just kind of, you know, are driven by that instinct more than anything else. Look at how graphic here the Lord speaks in verse 14 and 15 and 16 about his suffering. Poured out like water, bones out of joint, heart melting within, strength gone, thirsty, dehydrated, you know, hands and feet pierced. You can count the bones. And the one who made the water is thirsty so that I don't have to be. They part my garments, they cast lots. Matthew 27, 35. They crucified him, divided his garments, cast lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And then it refers to this verse, David the prophet. Just so you don't miss the fact the Lord had this plan, the Lord had this plan. And he wrote it down so that no one would miss it. In verse 19, but you, Lord... Don't be far from me. You're my strength. Hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword and my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. The turning point, the, the crying out, the dying, <laughs> the sacrifice. And then the words, you have answered me. The triumph. <laughs> the communion with the Father that's restored, the separation with God that now has been paid for. And Jesus is able to shout, finished, to telestai, it is finished. And so the tone changes. <laughs> Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And you who fear the Lord, praise him. You descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. And speaking to the Jews in particular, the Lord calls them to believe in him. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, verse 22 is quoted as referring to Jesus. And it is referred to him there. To the Jew first, <laughs> then to the Greek. The resurrection to the Jew first. And then we read in verse 25, the broader application, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor will eat and be satisfied. And those who seek him will praise the Lord. So let your heart live forever. And all of the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and the families of the nation shall worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord. He rules over the nations. Now it's the poor and the rich you read in the book of Acts, to the Jew first, but then the gospel went to the Gentiles, all men, for Jesus came to save all. And all of the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship, and all those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. And a posterity will serve him. It'll be recounted of the Lord to the next generation, and they will to come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has finished literally the work. He has done this. And thus the, the gospel that's being passed, you know? Jesus' final words, it is finished.
But then there's that next generation. What do we do to do the works of God? They asked Jesus in John 6. This is the work of God, Jesus said. You believe on him whom he sent. A posterity will serve him. And one generation passes it on to the next. And the message never changes. The Lord is finished. He paid the price. Beautiful song. I, I don't know what was going through David's head to write something like that. Or what he must have thought when he said, I think it's finished. I think I'm going to leave it like that. I wonder what it means. But look how God has used it. The Savior, the sacrifice, the cost of our salvation. Psalm 23 is certainly probably the best known of the Psalms by most people. Written by David the shepherd boy who early came to know the Lord as his Lord. Uh, Boyce uh, shared in his commentary on this Psalm that his mother took his Bible before she died and wrote in the, in the margin of Psalm 23, this is the secret of a happy life, a happy death, and a happy eternity. And then she gave it back to him. You make sure to read that. All in six verses. Um, the shepherd's life. And, you know, it is written from the experience of a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a great comparison. It comes from David, the shepherd boy. You know, shepherds have to live with sheep 24 hours a day. It's not a very pleasant job. In fact, if you look historically at shepherds, they aren't trusted. They couldn't vote. They weren't allowed to hold office. <laughs> no one would lend them a thing. And in a family, if you were the littlest kid on the block in the family, they gave you the job of watching the sheep. It was a lowly, unpleasant assignment. It rained, you were with the sheep. It snowed, you were with the sheep. Were there any, any food, you were with the sheep. When the wolves came, you had to protect the sheep. That was just, your, you just lived and you died for the sheep, which makes it a perfect example of God's love, doesn't it? The shepherd. Philip Keller years ago, who was a pastor, he was also a shepherd, but for eight years he was a pastor, wrote the book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, I'm sure we have it in the bookstore, you should go read it. it is, it's a great study of this Six verses. David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jehovah, the great I am, the becoming one, is my shepherd. Everything in this passage revolves around that truth. If the Lord is your shepherd and you're his sheep, then you can believe and, and trust all of these things. If he is not, there's no way you can expect him to do this in your life because the shepherd takes care of the sheep, but you got to be one of the sheep. So, if you're one of his sheep, here's what you can have. First of all, I shall not want, or literally, I will lack nothing. You know, sheep are the most helpless animals around. We belong to a God who has everything. It's a perfect match, isn't it? We who have nothing with he who has it all. This is a perfect match. That's the sheepfold I want to be in. You want to change sheep? Oh, no. I got a shepherd who's got it all. Everything's in the bag, you know? He's not leaving. He's got inexhaustible resources. He's the great I am. So I'm not going to lack anything if he's the shepherd. If he's my shepherd, I shall not want. Second of all, verse 2, he makes me lay down in green pastures and leads me besides the still water. I will not lack rest. He leads me in green pastures and still water. I won't lack rest. You know, sheep won't lay down. They're as skitterish of animals as you want. In order for sheep to lay down, they have to be free from fear. They hear something, they're standing up. They have to be free from friction with other sheep. 
They have to have eaten and not had a need for water. They have to have everything just say, okay, I guess I can sleep now, like a little kid. And you can just imagine, the, you know, the shepherd trying to get the sheep to lay down because they got to move to another pasture tomorrow. And they're just all messed up. You know, that's how they are. But if the Lord is your shepherd, then you don't lack rest. And David knew it. God will provide rest and peace and pasture and still waters. Nothing to startle us. You can let him be the shepherd of your life. Verse 3, he restores my soul and leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. I'm not only going to, you know, not want and, and not lack rest, but I'm not going to lack for life. He restores my soul, leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. In Hebrew, the words literally read, he brings back my soul. Every time it goes wandering off, he brings it back. It, 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 it falls in line with that parable of the lost sheep. In, you've probably heard the term cast sheep. Cast sheep are those sheep that roll over, and they get kind of heavy, and they can't get up, and they just, ah, on their back. And it's irritating, but if, if nobody goes to get the cast sheep, the cast sheep dies. If the shepherd doesn't come, the sheep dies. He brings back my soul. You roll over, you're having a hard week, you're backsliding a little bit, you're not doing too well. <laughs> Set you right back up. <laughs> the shepherd goes looking around to sheep to make sure they're not. <laughs> Peter, the Lord went and got him, found him, tell Peter I'm alive. The hundred who are doing 99 well, the one who's lost, yeah, go find them. If the Lord is your shepherd, you can rest assured of this one thing. You're not going to lack for life. God will get you through. These folks that always want to tell you you can lose your salvation, look, I can't keep myself for 10 minutes. So if I can lose my salvation, I want to tell you something. I'm going to lose it. That's my conclusion. If, I, if I'm left to myself to hang in there, I'm done. I'm cooked. I'm fried. I'm hung out to dry unless the Lord ah, comes looking for me. I'm the cast sheep about every day. I eat, okay, thank you. And I won't lack any guidance. He leads me in the path of righteousness. You know, sheep are stupid animals. I, I used to get offended when I read that, that shepherd's look at Psalm 23, that Keller book, and I, and I heard about how dumb sheep were. I thought, you know, that ain't right for the Lord to just look at me and go, you're a sheep. Well, I'm smarter than that, you know. How can you call me names like that? Sheep will just wander into oblivion. They're the livestock that require the most care. You know, it's not cattle. You can just, just throw some food out there and leave them alone and electrify the fence. They'll hit it once. They'll leave it alone. No, sheep are, yeah. They're just constant trouble. You know, they won't lay down. They haven't got a clue. If they don't have a field, if they don't have water, if water is right there and they're right here, no way. There's water. Yeah, there's water. I get it. We are as dumb as they come to the Lord, I guess. We'll die if he doesn't help us. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus leads me in right paths that my life might glorify him, righteous paths that my heart can live forever, that I can just be right with God for his name's sake. Verse 4, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear evil. You're with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. I'm not going to lack safety if, if the Lord is my shepherd. Sheep 
like I said, are not only dumb, but they're dangerous to themselves. They will walk off cliffs. They are the lemmings of the livestock, you know? Where are you going? I'm just going to walk right off of here. Okay, you know, I'm with you. One for all, for <laughs> one. Life-threatening. Wild animals come, they're dead. Traps, they fall in them. Steep cliffs, why not, you know? And yet the Lord's presence assures my safety. God is with us in this life to guard me and to protect me. By the way, up to here, David has spoken of God with second-person pronouns. He. But now he goes to third-person pronouns. You. You. Because the closeness of God in our trials, God becomes very real to us. The rod of the shepherd was to beat off the foe. The staff had a hook on it to assist the shepherd in his duties of getting the sheep that had fallen. Get up here, you know, like, like that hook that pulls off the bad comedian off the stage. <laughs> you know, here, shepherd, here, sheep, dumb sheep, you know, saved sheep. So we may die one day, but Jesus will be there to meet us with rod and staff in hand, no foe to keep us from him, no hindrance to contend with. He's going to get us there. And again, my contention is if the Lord doesn't get me there, I'm not getting there. But he's promised to get me there. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, anointing my head with oil, and my cup runs over. I'm going to have victory and provision. I love this God setting a table before us in the presence of our enemies. How often, you know, does God work in our lives amongst people that don't want anything to do with him, but you're just blessed. And then the people, oh, how did you get that? Oh, the Lord blessed me. Oh, yeah, that's what I want to hear, you know. And the enemy comes, but God prepares me. He protects me. He anoints my head with oil. You know, the problem with, with sheep is they get these bugs in their eyes and ears that irritate them, and then they don't lay down. They don't eat. You know, the whole thing starts all over again. But the salve keeps the bugs out. The Lord, just make sure that you're okay, you know. You're going to be blessed. Your cup runs over. And then verse 6, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and then I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's good here. It's good there. It's goodness that takes care of my steps and mercy that takes care of my stumbles, and together they'll get me home. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you might be also. If it were not so, I would have told you. Surely goodness and mercy, goodness and mercy. Goodness to watch what you do. The mercy to help you when you don't. Beautiful psalm, huh? For us sheep. Following Psalm 22, which spoke of Jesus' death, and Psalm 23, which spoke of the result, and we could have a relationship with God as sheep. Then comes Psalm 24, the claim of the Lord to the world. He has purchased it, it is his. Now, it very well could be, because of some of the quotes in it, that this was written at, at the time when David brought the ark into Jerusalem, into the place that he had prepared for it, from the house of Obed-Edom, um, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, because God was seen to dwell between the two cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and that would, if, if it was written then, that was the short view. The long view is Jesus is coming to rule and reign, and it's going to be his kingdom. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's, and all of its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, it's the Lord's. Now, he has a rightful claim to it. He has founded it upon the seas. He has established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in the holy place? 
those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who haven't lifted up their soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, they shall receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Clean hands, that's outward holiness. Pure heart, that's inward holiness. A good heart, a clean life. When the Lord comes for us or comes for all of us, who's going to stand? And the answer is those who've received the blessings of God, the salvation from the Lord. Notice who's going to stand, not those who have done, those who have received. Isn't that interesting? The way you qualify to stand before God is to receive. Not to do, what can I do for you, Lord? No, if you could just receive. Well, I'd like to, but I'd like to do more than that. No, just receive. That's all you need. So this awesome declaration in verse 5, he shall receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation. If God is our salvation, we're going to be blessed. And when we come one day to stand, we're going to stand there. Those who seek the Lord, who seek his face, that's going to be the generation. Interesting that the Lord uses the word Jacob there, which was the man before his really commitment or, or his, you know, in his rebellious years. But he came to know the Lord. The guy that was lost, or so it would seem, was found. This is the one who stands before the Lord. The messianic psalm, just to let the king in. And then we read, so lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory will come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your head gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. The king of glory is going to come in. Who is he? This king of glory, he's the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Who's going to stand before him? He who has a pure heart, clean hands, hasn't sworn deceitfully, has received God's blessing by believing in him. Beautiful psalm. And finally tonight, Psalm 25. It is one of those repeating prayers of David. And you find it in a lot of places. David seems to be older. Um, the psalm doesn't seem to be just one prayer. It seems rather to be a compilation of prayers for God's mercy, for God to keep David from sin, for God to forgive him. I almost see verse 1 through 7 as being a prayer. And, and then down through verse 11, there seems to be another one. And then beginning in verse 15, there's another one. But the theme is all of this guidance and, and David's circumstances. When they were dire, he always found that God could do what he wanted. It's almost like, you know, a greatest hits album for prayer. And, and it seems like David's gone through a lot. I, I remember reading uh, in the life and times of Abraham Lincoln that he once said that he was often driven by, to God in prayer because of the overwhelming sense that he didn't know he, or he didn't find any other place he could go. And they said, well, why do you pray so often? He said, I don't know where else to go. And I think that's kind of David's story here, and I, I hope that's yours as well. But here's a pretty good insight into prayer that can give you hope. And maybe you pray the prayer like David did because he repeats himself. These, a repeating prayer of David. The same things are asked for, but it's kind of repeated uh, three different times. Verse 1. To you, Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let my, not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed, but let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. And so, Lord, keep me, protect me. Verse 4, and then show me your way, Lord, and teach me your paths, or direct me. I'm wanting, I'm willing, I'm waiting to be led. Lead me, verse 5, 
in your truth. Teach me. You are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. That's a great prayer. And remember, Lord, your tender mercy and your loving kindness. I always think that's a good part to throw in there. Hi, Lord, it's me. Yeah, I'm going to need some more of that tender mercy and loving kindness. For they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or the sins of my yesterday, nor my transgressions. And according to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, Lord. I love David's always, and as he seeks the Lord, repenting of his sin, asking for restoration. Don't remember the sins of my youth. I think I did worse in my youth than any other time in my life as well. I'm glad I wasn't in the public eye when I was a kid. I feel for people like Britney Spears, you know. How do you, I, I could tell you my stories up to 18 or 20 years old. They're horrible. And then I got saved. And then there's a better story for the most part. Oh, there were a couple of them, but, you know, things I would for the most part, go, man, God's been so good. But when you're a kid, when you're a punk, you know, like I was, I'm glad the Lord doesn't remember that stuff. We're stupid when we're kids. I just, I'm just convinced of that. Well, except my children, of course. They were never stupid. But <laughs> thank you very much. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, David says. He teaches sinners the way. And the humble he will guide in justice and the humble he will teach his way, for the paths of the Lord's are mercy and truth to such as will keep his covenant and his testimony. So I'm ready to do what you want. I need your forgiveness. Please help me and show me and teach me. And don't let me be ashamed. Beautiful prayer. Not really asking for anything other than spiritual blessings. And I, I trust that God moves quickly on those. For your namesake, O oh Lord, pardon my iniquity, it is great. And then this, who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he chooses. He himself will dwell in prosperity. His descendants will inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. To them he will show his covenant. So my eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. What a beautiful prayer. Submit to God, consecrate, confess, have a right attitude towards his word. And even in his plight, David says, I'm just going to keep my eyes on the Lord. If I trip up, he's going to get me out. Turn yourself to me. Have mercy on me. I am desolate and afflicted, and the troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look upon my affliction and pain. Forgive all of my sins. Third time he says it. And consider my enemies. There are a lot of them. They hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed. I put my trust in you. Sound like verse one, doesn't it? Let integrity and uprighteousness preserve me. I wait for you. Sounds like verse five. And redeem Israel, God, out of all of their troubles. Father, tonight as we sit together, it is such a blessing to know that our relationship with you is sure. And it is solid, and it is based not only upon your promises, but upon your actions. As you have sent your only begotten Son to redeem us, to make us your own. We think about that thankful prayer that David wrote after the battle was won, and his trust in you had come to pass. Make us more thankful. We think about Psalm 22, so out of character, so unapplicable to anything in David's life. And yet, Lord, you used him to tell us a thousand years before it took place, here's how I'm going to die. 
Here's what I'm going to go through. Here's what I'm going to face so you don't have to. Here's what the people are going to say while I pay the ultimate price so that we would never be confused or think that somehow things got away from you or, 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 or you lost control or you, you suffered from a bad set of luck and things didn't work out. No, you went there willingly with eyes wide open and a heart wide open as well. We thank you, Lord, as we read Psalm 23, that we are the sheep in the sheepfold of the shepherd of our souls who doesn't need a thing, yet we need everything, who will be sure that we don't want and we don't lack rest and we don't lack life and we don't lack guidance and we won't lack safety and we won't lack provision and we won't lack victory and we won't lack a heavenly home. We're going to have it all because you're the shepherd. We're the sheep. Keep us. Get us from here to there, God. And may the king come and rule the earth for which he has given his life. But in the meantime, like David, may we pray for forgiveness, for mercy, for guidance, for strength, for deliverance, for help, for your goodness sake. He seeks to teach sinners his way, the humble to guide into justice. Teach us, Lord. Draw us close to the God who has done so much. Maybe tonight you are far away from the Lord, but let me just assure you, you don't have to be. Maybe you felt like you've cut yourself off with God. I don't believe that's true. If you're willing to be restored, God is willing to restore. He'll forgive, forget your sin. Jesus paid for them all. So you can come near. And if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you can be saved tonight. You can be restored tonight. It can be done tonight, if you're willing. Prayer room is over on the, on the left. Come, pray with someone, ask, and watch God work. But make sure that your relationship with the Lord is such that he is your shepherd and you're the sheep of his pasture. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at Patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash MorningstarCC.